I'll invite you to um, turn with me if you have a copy of the scriptures with you or look on your smartphone. I was going to do that up here and figured, uh, no, at my age, I'd best uh, stick with the uh, tried and true here. Probably mess it up somehow. Um, We're going to read from 1 Samuel 16, the first 13 verses this morning. Um, One more chapter in in God's great story um, that includes us now. And uh, it's very interesting to see um, that God had a plan and how that worked out in the lives of David and, uh, and the Israelites. 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. The Lord's word. Thank you, Doug. There's probably not a more popular character in the Old Testament, more well-loved, more well-known than King David, and he is somebody who wrote half of the Psalms that we have in the Old Testament, so there's 151 Psalms, 75 are attributed to David. We know a lot about David's life, those are some of the stories that we loved as children, David and Goliath, of, of course. If you grew up in church, there's some stories that you didn't learn on the flannel graph, though, so we're going to leave those out this morning. The flannel graph is is only good for kids when they're showing, like, 
It's like this thing that they could stick figures on and then yeah, they acted out the stories. There's some stories in David's life that we, we don't want to act out this morning. And this morning, we're going to go back to the very beginning of David's story of who God is and who David is, his story, and why his story was important in the whole story, in the big story, in God's story, and why this morning we find it's important in each of our stories too. But I want to do a little bit of background this morning. So what brings us to this point? Why is Samuel filling his horn with oil and going to this place to anoint this young kid? And so we find, who remembers what Jeff spoke on two weeks ago? Who is the character? Anybody remember who the character was two weeks ago? Jeff spoke, Pastor Jeff spoke. I hear S's happening. Samson, good. There's a lot of snakes happening there. Samson. And Samson was in the book of Judges. There was 12 judges in the book of Judges. And Samson was the very last judge in that book. But he wasn't the last judge of Israel. We start... For Samuel, and we find out there was two more judges. And the judges that we find out there, the first one, who was also the high priest, and the high priest was in charge of the worship for all of these tribes. Now, there's 12 tribes of Israel. So we have to understand, at this point, Israel was a collection of tribal, tribal communities. They weren't a country. They weren't a nation. They were led by patriarchs, uh, family, had lots of family history. And so they were tribes that were scattered around the land there. And so Eli was the lead worship leader for all of those tribes. But he also was the second last judge. So not only did he go around helping people worship through sacrifice, uh, he, he also called people to come and visit him when they had a problem. He would sometimes go visit people when there was a conflict, when people were in a fight. He would go and help them sort that fight out. Sometimes he would even bring punishment. Sometimes he would help people find forgiveness. And so he was the second last judge. There's a beautiful story right in 1 Samuel chapter 1. The, the book of Samuel, there's first and second. Uh, originally, it wasn't two books. We have to think about it as one long story because it only became two because scrolls weren't long enough to, to carry the whole story. So it became two scrolls. And they called it 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. But... It's one big story. In the very beginning of this story, we find this young woman who wanted to have a family so bad, and they were trying probably for some years to have a child. And it was really important to have children back then. Children meant the future of your tribe. Children meant that you had a status in society. And so having kids was a really big deal. And so she was pretty upset that she couldn't have kids. And so they went to worship where Eli led worship. And she cried out to God. And she asked, she begged God for a child. And she knew it would have to be a miracle from God. And so Eli prayed over her. And God did grant her the miracle. It was a beautiful miracle. And so in return for this miracle of allowing her to not only have this one child, but to have more children too, she gave up her firstborn child. She named him Samuel. And Samuel, she gave him to Eli to raise to become a worship leader like Eli was. And that became really important because Eli, Eli's sons, they were kind of bad dudes. They would like steal things from people. They would take the meat that they were supposed to be sacrificing to God. They'd take it for themselves and go have a barbecue. Like they weren't good leaders. And so the Israelites were pretty upset with them. And they said, we don't want, 
we don't want these guys to become the leaders of us. And so what happened next was that Samuel was then became the next leader. And he became the last judge. He became the, the high priest. And he was really special. Uh, he also had a third job. And his third job was to become a prophet. And he became the first prophet, not, not the only prophet. Moses, they called a prophet. There were some prophets before then. But he was the first prophet to what would become the era of the kings. And so Samuel was a pretty important guy. And wouldn't you believe it, Samuel's, Samuel grows up and becomes the judge, he becomes the priest, he becomes the prophet, he's the leader, and his sons are going to take over, just like Eli's sons were supposed to. And guess what? Samuel's son, Samuel was a good dude, people loved him, and his sons were bad. His sons didn't fall in his footsteps, again. And Israel gets really upset with this, and so finally they've kind of had it with this whole system. And they see other family groups, other tribes that are growing into beyond just tribalism. And they say, we want a king like these other people. We want to become a country. We want to become a nation like the nations around us. Because right now we're just a bunch of tribes that are separate. We have these judges. We don't even want these guys to be judges over us. Would you give us a king? That was a bad request. It seems normal. It seems like a good thing. But here's the problem with that is that It's kind of like, you know, in the New Testament, the story of the prodigal son. There's a son who asked his father for his inheritance so that he could go to the city and spend it on stuff he wasn't supposed to spend it on. And basically what that meant was he was saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. Give me the money now. And that's kind of what Israel was saying to God. God wanted to be their king. God wanted to be the one in charge. And now they're saying, we want a human king. We want a person who's in charge of us. And God says, it's not going to turn out well, you guys. And so he says that through Samuel. He says, Samuel, you have to tell the people, this is not going to turn out well. But give them what they really want. And isn't that interesting? I think that God sometimes works that way in our lives, in the lives of people We want something so desperately, we want something so bad, and we won't give up on asking for it, and yet God knows it's not the right thing. Sometimes he allows us to experience that running our own lives is not a good thing. And so that's what he was going to let Israel find out, that having a person in charge of them instead of God being king. And so Samuel being in charge, he picked this really tall, strong, strapping, handsome really good-looking guy named Saul. And this guy was going to be the greatest king. And he was pretty good for a while until he started not listening to God. And God said, we can't have this guy in charge. And so he's finished. And Samuel was really upset because actually Samuel liked Saul quite a bit. And, but, but God said, we can't have a guy in charge who's not going to listen to me. And so what happens next is what brings us to our story. God decides to choose his own king for Israel. And that's where our story picks up this morning. As we walk through this story of of Samuel anointing David as a young boy to become king, the word see, S-E-E, the word see with our eyes, that word becomes really important in this section, in this story. 
It comes up quite often because we find out that God's view is very different than our view. We find that God's vision should be the vision that defines reality, not our own. What we see is very different than what God sees. And so because God's vision should define reality, as we work through this story, we must learn to trust God's plans and purposes because firstly, God, God's vision sees straight to the heart. Secondly, God's vision feels upside down to our values. And thirdly, God's vision is empowered by the Spirit of God. And so firstly, God's vision sees straight to the heart. So the first king, Saul, he works out terribly. And God tells Samuel to stop feeling bad, stop feeling sorry for himself, stop feeling sorry for Israel. Go put oil in your horn. And oil in the horn meant that he was going to go and douse somebody with this oil. And that was the ceremony that would make somebody king. And it's, it's quite interesting, actually, that in ancient Egypt, the pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt, was never anointed. But it was actually the king, pharaoh, who would anoint his regents, the leaders under him. So it's really interesting that God tells Samuel to go get this horn full of oil and anoint David to become king. What that means is that God says, I'm actually king, I'm pharaoh, and David is going to be my regent. He's going to be the one under me carrying out my purposes. It's really beautiful imagery. It also symbolizes that this person will be full of the spirit of God. And so God will have control and purpose for this person. And so Samuel goes to find Jesse, who's a farmer in one of the tribes called Judah. And he shows up and God says, because I have chosen one of his sons to be king. That's what the NIV says. But it's pretty interesting that the Hebrew, this is where the word comes up. The Hebrew says, I have seen a king for myself among his sons. This idea of vision. God has seen. That's the choosing that God uses. So God's vision is different. That's, that's where this idea first comes up. Samuel first sees Eliab. Eliab's the oldest son He's very tall, he's strong, he's handsome, he's about 20 years old, he's ready to be part of the army, and Samuel sees him and he says, of course this is king, of course this guy has to become the king. Look at him, he's going to be great on the battlefield. And God says, nope, it's not going to be that guy. And Samuel thinks to himself, what am I doing wrong here? (laughs) Obviously I'm doing something wrong. And God says to Samuel in verse 7, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Really key verse about who God is. Who's seen the live action? There's a new movie that came out, Beauty and the Beast. It's not a... Yeah, raise your hand. You girls have seen it. Anybody else? You girls have seen it. Did you like it? It was enjoyable? What's the key point of the beauty and the beast? Who knows? There's this big, ugly, hairy guy, right? And this young lady, this princess, falls in love with him. That's super weird. He's really big and ugly and gross. But there's a curse on him. And so the point is is that that despite the outer appearance, there's something in the heart 
that she needs to find out that he's actually a good person, that he's lovable, that he can be loved. It's interesting that this gentleman, Howard Ashman, who's the lyricist on that movie, he was suffering from AIDS and he was dying as the movie was about to be released. And he said in an interview he felt very similar to the beast at that time. At that point in history, it was the early 90s, 1991, when the Disney movie came out, and people treated people with AIDS very differently than we do now. I think we're a lot more uh, generous and a lot more compassionate, and so he felt like he was the beast. People looked at him in a totally different manner. He felt like an outcast. He felt like unloved, and that's how he went to his grave. So the story is really about getting past physical appearance to learn about someone's heart. There's another story that I actually wouldn't suggest to kids, because it's a little outrageous, it's Disney, but has anybody seen like The Hunchback of Notre Dame? It's kind of dark, actually. So kids, maybe wait till you're 15 or 16 to watch that one. The Hunchback of Notre Dame is really similar, and it's actually about a real-life person. So the author of the story, the fable that the Disney movie is made from, there was a, a sculptor who worked on the church, that is the setting of the movie, and that sculptor they nicknamed Mr. Hunchback. Monsieur Bossu, I think, is hunchback or something in French. And so they, uh, he wrote the story around him. And this is what he says in the story, the author of that, that story. He says, Victor Hugo says in this novel, that this belief in physical appearances shaped people's characteristics. So it wasn't even that we, we would look at somebody and think something about them. Back then, they actually thought that if you were ugly and misshapen, that it made you unlovable. Like, it made you terrible. It made you a monster. This is what he said. It's very interesting. He said, He was, in truth, bad because he was wild. He was wild because he was ugly. So, for lots of history, people have judged from the outside. But that's, that's actually not that different from today. We are consumed by how people look. We're consumed by, we're such a visual culture. Now the news, you're, you're more likely to watch news on the television than listen to it on the radio. It's very visual. Uh, Facebook, of course, has blown up, but that's now become old news. I'm old because I still use Facebook. Facebook's not even cool anymore. And now it's Instagram. And Instagram's not even that cool anymore because Snapchat is cooler. And all of that is super visual. It's like you get to see people, and people set up themselves in, in ways that make them look better than real life. We sometimes do advertisement on Facebook and Instagram. We pay them money, and they, it's actually good advertising if you have a business to advertise on social media. And it doesn't cost a lot of money, and so we'll do that with my photography and film team that we have. And so, so we advertise, and for sure, the posts that get way more likes and way more looks are a photograph more than just words. If it's just words, people kind of ignore it. If it's a photograph, we'll get likes for sure. If it's a video, it's off the charts. We're in the thousands of likes if we post a video. It's insane. We're, we're very visually driven culture. We do judge books by the cover, or more likely, we judge Netflix movies by the cover. Have you ever sat there watching Netflix and you're just scrolling and you pick a movie because the cover looks good? And it's a really terrible movie, probably, most of the time, because Netflix really has terrible movies on it. We are people who judge Netflix by the cover. We look at people, 
and we think that we know what they're like and who they are. But God sees things very differently. God sees straight to the heart. And so secondly, God's vision feels really upside down. It's really related to the first. But God's vision feels really upside down to our values. And so here's this big guy, Eliab, the oldest son of eight sons that Jesse had. And, and Jesse, the proud father, he parades him in front of Samuel and he says, this is, this is probably the new king. And Samuel thinks, yep, look at that guy. And God says, nope, not that guy. And then the next son, Abinadab, nope. Next, Shammah, not that one either. And Jesse had seven sons pass by Samuel. And Samuel's like, is this all the sons you have? And Jesse says, well, there's still the youngest. He's out tending sheep. And, and I, it just, the Hebrew doesn't quite do that justice. The, the Hebrew word there for youngest, it does kind of mean that. It means young, but it also means small, insignificant, even unimportant. So Jesse is like, well, Tim Keller says, the runt of the litter, right? He's out tending the sheep. He wasn't even invited to the party, this eight son. In fact, at this point in the story, we don't even have a name. We don't even know that his name is David. He's just the nameless runt of the litter who wasn't good enough to be invited to the party. In fact, he's not even the seventh son. In, in, In Hebrew numerology, number seven is really important. It means like completion. So the storyteller if he really wanted to build up David as being this amazing king, he would have said he was the seventh son. Because the seventh means perfection. It means completion. Like this is, the seventh son would be the one. David's the eighth son. He's the forgotten son. He's not important. He's completely unimportant. God's values are totally upside down to our values. Okay, I... Here's a little object lesson this morning. I need, if you are taller than 6'2", I want you to stand up. Taller than 6'2". Come on. Don't be shy. Steve, I, ho- I was hoping you're here, Steve. Mark, no, it's just stay standing, stay standing. Steve, I might need... Mark, you're really tall. You might be t- taller. And Larry, come on. <laughs> That's because you're shrinking. When you, get, when you get our age, you start shrinking, I know. You were taller than that when you were younger, I know. All right, so 6'3", stay standing. 6'4", stay standing. 6'5", Mark. Are you 6'5"? Those plet jeans. Okay, now now we're going to have a flex off (laughs) to decide. All right, Mark, come on up here. And I I need a 10-year-old boy. Who's 10? Who's 10? Nine. Who's nine? See, David was right around that age. Andrew? Andrew's raising. He's easy. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to pick Andrew because he's right here. But I'll give you a, a prize later. Okay. All right. Come on up here. So can you imagine this? This is for... You've got to go hide in the field with the sheep first. Okay. So, so look at how tall he is. Like, look at how tall I am compared to him. It's incredible. So can you... Oh, okay. That's good. Uh, I was feeling a little inadequate there for a moment. So, so can you imagine Samuel... Can you imagine this guy? 
Is any guy in the room, you don't have to come up, but is any man in the room like 5'6"? Any guy 5'6"? It kind of doesn't exist anymore. But back then in Israel, it does once in a while. I don't, if you're 5'6 and you didn't stand up, I, I don't mean to um, offend you. But, but it, can you imagine all the guys would be about 5'6 back then? Even the warriors, even the strongest men in Israel. They're about 5'6". And then you got a guy like this. Can you imagine the, the, the length of sword that he could have in the, in the battlefield? He could just swing it like this and be taking down guys. It, of course he should be the king. Look at him. He's massive. And then God says, mm, no. And then there's this guy. The runt. The runt of the litter. And so Sammy says, okay, go get him. Okay, now. Uh, now, I want you to flex. Big fl- Let's have a flex off. We're going to have a flex off. Look at those muscles. Okay. And I want... Mark's going to flex first, and we're going to choose who should be king. Okay? Okay, let's... So, Mark... Okay, and it's going to be by applause. Okay, give us... Come on. Give us a... Hey, look at that. Hey, there's something there. That's pretty good. That's, that's, good. Oh, that's pretty good. All right. All right. Your turn. Your turn. Give us a flex. All right. Who's going to... Okay, we need better applause than that. Who's going to win here? Mark, who's going to win? Levi, I was going to call you. Andrew. Andrew. Let's clap for Andrew. Uh, 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 I think you guys are bad Israelites because I think Andrew... Andrew might have won the applause meter. So, Andrew, because you won, you get to choose your prize. One prize... One of the boxes I picked up at Tim Hortons, you know what, the pastors must love Tim Hortons because Tim Hortons has shown up here a few times in sermons. So one, I chose Tim Hortons, and then, and then this, this actually I just got out of my fridge. And, uh, and there's one thing left in there. So you can choose your prize this morning. Oh! Oh! Okay, and this one's yours. You can have that. Thank you for being a good sport. Now, you have to open, open them up and show everybody that. Wow! Can you open that up? What do you got? Yeah! That, that could have played out really badly, couldn't it? Wow, good job. And so the, the point is that Andrew gets it way better than the Israelites did, is that you can't judge a book by its cover, or he's a vegetarian, we're not sure which one, but you can't judge a book by its cover. You don't, don't always know what's inside the package, and we can't, we can't judge a Netflix movie by its cover. This is really amazing. Not, not only does God not judge a book by its cover, but his values for the kingdom seem totally different than what we humans value. So God chooses this eighth son from a tribe of farmers who weren't even known to be warriors. God chooses this nameless eighth son to become the greatest king of Israelite history. Not only the greatest king of their history, the king that all other kings after him should have been modeled. And he becomes actually the seed of the promised Messiah to come. It's incredible. Tim Keller reminds us that God 
chooses Abel, not Cain. You know, his values are so different. All through scripture, we see his values turn, turn our human values on their heads. Tim Keller says, God chooses Abel, not Cain. God prefers Jacob, not Esau. Jacob's the younger son. God chooses Joseph over his older brothers. God chooses Moses, the younger brother, not Aaron. But it extended beyond that as well. God chose the insignificant or irrelevant according to their cultural standards as well. Not just the youngest son. God chose old barren Sarah over young fertile Hagar. He chose unlovely Leah over beautiful Rachel. He always chooses the girl nobody wants and the son that is forgotten. God's vision for the world feels contrary to our values. It's upside down to us. And so God's vision sees straight to the heart. And God's vision feels upside down to us. And so it's at this point in the story where we feel like, well, God rejected Eliab and he chose David. Why? Because scripture says that David was a man after God's own heart. He had a good heart. And so we think, oh man, we should become more like David. If I could just become more like David, if I could, if I could work my heart in a way that, that's, that's morally upright, where, where my heart is good, if I become more like David, maybe, maybe God would like me more. Maybe life would go better. C.S. Lewis says that if our character flaws in our heart in our heart of hearts. If our character flaws are left unchecked, maybe we work hard at managing them, but we don't really get them fully healed. You know, there's always a little bit of anger inside our heart, or there's always just a little bit. Nobody knows about it, but there's always just a little bit of jealousy in my heart. And C.S. Lewis says, if, if those go left unchecked, and we think we've managed them in life, into eternity, left unchecked, those will grow wild and out of control, and it will be like a living hell. We need something more than just managing our own morality, managing our heart. If we think that, oh, he must have chosen David because David's heart was so pure and and my heart should be like David, then we read more of the story and we are crushed under the weight of David's massive moral failures. David was at times a terrible leader. But what we find later in the story wasn't that it was because he had a morally right heart or or a good heart. It's because his heart was soft towards God. And so since the beginning of time, God even foretold in Genesis that there there would be a leader, a king, a messianic king, a savior. Messiah just means savior, a saving king that would come, a promised one, that would crush this serpent, which was, which was evil, would, would crush its head, but as he was crushing its head, the serpent would bite its heel, and it would become a mortal wound, and this leader would have to die. And all throughout history, Israel was hoping for this leader, and here, finally, Samuel anoints young David with oil, and they're thinking, this is the promised one. This is the one that will save us. And then we realize that that same evil, the same sin that infected all of humanity is also infecting David. He can't save the world, let alone Israel. And so, 
there's something, a promise that's to come. We need something better than just an earthly kingdom. We need something better than, than our hoped-for leader. We need, we need something better than, than the elect president. We need something better than a Christian prime minister. That won't help. That won't help. It doesn't solve the problem of sin. We need a kingdom that's different than a kingdom of this earth. We need a kingdom of the heart. We need something that's going to come and transform the heart. And so the promise is that there's a, someone coming with a kingdom that's upside down that can transform us from the inside out. And that promise began with the anointing of David, but it wasn't fulfilled there. And so David wasn't the one who would bring this promise. It was one of his descendants. Hundreds of years later. And so thirdly, God's vision is empowered by the Spirit of God. God's vision is much bigger than ours. God's vision isn't just to have this earthly kingdom where we have a Christian nation or, or we have some kind of positive realm among us, although that's not terrible. It just doesn't solve the human problem. God's vision is much bigger than that. It's a vision of a kingdom that would come among us that we can't see. A kingdom that values things that we don't value. That values the unloved. That values the lost. That values the broken. That values the things of of this earth that we don't normally value. And the way that that's going to come about is by the Spirit of God. And so God's vision is empowered by the Spirit. And by that, I mean two things. Firstly, the first thing is that we read in this passage that Just for David's ministry to become king, he needed the power of the Spirit in his life. And so at verse 13, says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. But not only did the Spirit transform David, the real idea is you can't just have a leader full of the Spirit. If you want real transformation across the planet... You need the Spirit of God to come upon all people everywhere. And so we see this promise in Joel, a prophet, in chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, says this, And afterward I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see see visions. We'll begin to see things the way that God sees things. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour my spirit out in those days. Just like David, the true King Jesus was born in Bethlehem. David's father was Jesse, and Jesus came from the line of Jesse. David was anointed as king. Jesus was anointed with water in baptism and with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And Jesus was raised to become the coming king, just like David received this anointing when he was a boy and had to wait for it to be received. Jesus had to wait for his anointing, for his real anointing, as he died on the cross and rose again. That's when he took his throne. And afterward, I will pour my spirit. This is the only way that we can have true transformation is if the Spirit of God comes on us. And David couldn't impart the Spirit to his people. There's only one king that can impart the Spirit of God to people, and that's King Jesus. 
And we need the Spirit to give us eyes, firstly, to see Christ. When our eyes are open to see Jesus for who he is, the promised Messiah, the, the one who defeated sin and death, then the Spirit will come upon us and empower our vision to line up with God's vision in the world. And God will transform how we see the world. God will transform how we see each other. We'll begin to see that the kingdom of God is near us. It's a different kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom that can transform the heart. Maybe this morning you're sitting here and you've been invited by a friend or you've been here with us for a while, but you're still not sure. You just don't see it. There's a beautiful story in Mark, a story by, with a guy in it named Bartimaeus, and he was blind, Mark chapter 10. And Jesus asked Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And maybe you're here this morning and you have the same response, help me to see. I want to see. I encourage you just to have a mustard seed of faith this morning to say, I don't see it, but God, if this is real, if Jesus is real, if there's real transformation, would you help me to see? And the good good news, boys and girls, children, the good news for you is that God doesn't overlook you. You're an integral part of the kingdom of God. You are warriors. God has a purpose for you. You are not overlooked. You're not insignificant. You are so important. God has a plan for your life that you can't even imagine. And in the kingdom, you are loved. And in the kingdom, you are great. You are not overlooked. And for some of you, the world has pointed out why you're inadequate. Maybe you never measured up to your friends. Maybe... Maybe you were never quite as good looking or tall or good at sports. Maybe you've never been good at school. Maybe you dropped out of elementary school. Maybe you never made it to high school. Maybe your education, you're ashamed of it, you're the lack of it. Maybe, maybe you're ashamed of the lack of money that you have, that your house doesn't measure up to your friends. Maybe there's ways in life that we all feel like we don't measure up. Sometimes I, I feel pretty good about myself. Those are good days. And I, and I think, man, you know, I'm feeling really good. I look good today. And then I catch my reflection in a car window. Have you, have you ever done that? Don't look at the car window. It's terrible. And I feel terrible about myself again. In God's kingdom, God doesn't look at the outside. Maybe you're too overweight. Maybe you're too skinny. Maybe your friends told you you're too loud. Maybe you're not serious enough. Maybe the world told you you're too old to be of any use. All of that is rubbish, as Ian might say. All of that is rubbish in God's kingdom. In Jesus' kingdom, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. You're chosen, you're desired, you're adopted, you're loved, you're important. No matter your education, your appearance, your financial status, your age, Jesus wants to pour his spirit on you so your eyes are opened to his kingdom and his purpose for you. Some of us have worked really hard in life to overcome those things, and some of us have become wealthy. Some of us have become good-looking, and we never were as a child. You know, you got past those awkward years of of puberty, and and you became a good-looking human individual, and you work hard at that. Some of us work hard at 
the outside things. Some of us worked hard at our education because we didn't have any. And those are fine in and of, of, of themselves. But underneath working so hard at life to become accepted and to become prominent and become important, underneath all of that, in your heart of hearts, you know there's stuff that you haven't dealt with. You know there's stuff in your heart that you can't get rid of. Maybe it's anger or it's anxiety. Maybe it's jealousy. It's pride. And the only way that that can change is if we put our trust in Jesus, the true king, and he opens our eyes to who he really is and gives us eyes to see. He wants your vision to match his for your life. And he can do that for you. I want to, as we close, I want to read Ephesians. Paul understood this and he prayed for the Ephesian church and I want to pray it for you. Ephesians chapter 1, 17 to 21 and And Paul prays, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and all authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. I pray that God would open the eyes of our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, if you don't open the eyes of our hearts, we will not be able to see you. We cannot see you for who you are. If the Spirit doesn't do that awakening work in us, we will endlessly chase things that are are really upside down to your kingdom. We will continually judge people in ways that, that aren't true to who they really are will forever see the world in a way that is not how it was really created. Lord, if you don't open our eyes, we'll never be able to see the kingdom. We'll never be able to see who we really are made to be. And so this morning I pray that by your Spirit you would open the eyes of our hearts, that the power of your Spirit would come upon each of us as we just say like blind Bartimaeus, Lord, help me to see so that you can transform our hearts. That's the only way true change can happen as you continue to change us into the likeness of Christ. Lord, one day we, we all know that one day we'll stand in his presence and behold his glory and we'll be transformed into his glory, into his likeness. And we know, though, that that can start right now by your spirit. Lord, change how we see. Would you open our eyes? In the name of Jesus, amen.